Hey everyone, we have for you today a little bit of a show and tell. So before you get into the guts of this episode with uh, our friend Michael Erickson of Scientific Triathlon, go ahead and download the uh, decision tree that he kindly made up for us from the show notes and that way you can follow along. The other thing I'll say is that we had a little bit of audio issues uh, on Michael's side. Did my best to clean him up, but there are a couple of blips and blobs here and there. So my apologies for that. Hi, everyone. I'm Andrew. And I'm Michael. And this is the Endurance Innovation Podcast. Hey everyone, and uh, welcome back to Endurance Innovation. And today it is my pleasure to uh, also welcome back a friend of the show and uh, previous guest, uh, Michael Erickson of Scientific Triathlon and That Triathlon Show. Michael, welcome to the show. Thanks, Michael. It's uh, good to be back. For those of you who don't know Michael, uh, although that's probably the minority of our listeners, he um, he's the head coach of uh, Scientific Triathlon as well as... Uh, you know, as I mentioned, the the host of That Triathlon Show, which is an excellent show on everything triathlon, both the uh, the technical side and then the coaching and training approaches. So we will absolutely link to uh, his show in our show notes, and we strongly recommend that you check it out. Thanks. I really, really appreciate that. Going on for a, for a while, and uh, actually just re- reached 1 million downloads, so so it's been, been a, good, uh, a good, strong uh, development of the listenership. Oh, that's awesome. Congratulations. That is a, that is a big milestone. Well done. And in fact, the, uh, the impetus for t- this morning's show is um, an episode that Michael put out a couple of weeks ago. It was uh, his Q&A number 51, where a listener had asked him about the value of doing really long rides and whether or not um, you could achieve the same uh, training adaptation by breaking the, those rides up. And so that uh, got me thinking because that's a, a topic of conversation that I, I'm always interested in exploring. And so Michael, went, Michael and I went back and forth uh, over email talking about some of, those, uh, some of the things that he brought up in that show. And I asked him if he wanted to come on our show to have uh, a similar conversation, but this time about running. Uh, and so that is going to be where we spend our time today talking about the value of duration versus frequency in, uh, in run training. Yeah. Uh, so to clarify, that question actually was about whether you can uh, replace the long ride with a shorter, more intense ride. So it's pitted intensity against duration. Uh, and But yes, one of those aspects of the long ride or long workout did sort of uh, fall into, or, or I explained it from the perspective of, in this case, you might or might not be able to uh, to compensate for the lack of a long workout with frequency. So those two can, of course, also be pitted against each other and there are uh, pros and cons of uh, of each and different scenarios where you might want to prioritize one above the other. But the, the main question that that listener had was actually intensity against uh, duration of a single workout. But I think that the question that you proposed here for this episode with actually probably uh, more interesting because... Uh, we arrive maybe at the same total volume. So it can be slightly more 
more nuanced and, and a bit more difficult to to get that uh, get that get that right unless you have uh, really uh, extensive uh, experience with with what really works for you or or just really understand uh, how your body works. And I can certainly see the practicality behind that. <clears throat> excuse me, that question um, where. If you have a six-hour block that you need to set aside uh, for a long ride or something like that, it, it becomes extremely difficult to plan that into your weekend sometimes. So having maybe two hours and then four hours is a lot more practical than that full six hours. So it's it's a great question. Absolutely, especially if that six-hour block happens to be on the on an indoor trainer. If you're, you know, in the northern hemisphere, well, well, any hemisphere that has winter, and uh, are training for a spring race, a spring long course race, and you have to spend a lot of time on the trainer, yeah, that becomes a, a pretty um, a pretty onerous thing to do. Uh, but just I do want to give a little bit of context, and I won't dwell on this for too long. Um, Michael and I uh, mentioned terms uh, like intensity, duration, and frequency, and they're probably fairly self-explanatory. But it's worth saying that these are the three uh, common levers of um, programming for endurance training, right? So these are the the three variables that you as a, a coach or a self-coached athlete can manipulate in order to design training. And really, that's all that you know, programming or training design is, um, not, not all of it. I'm oversimplifying, but for, at least for metabolic training, uh, taking aside, you know, um, other, other factors of, uh, fitness, but for metabolic training, these are the three key variables that you can manipulate. And in today's discussion, um, as Michael alluded, we're going to set aside, um, intensity and we, we won't talk about it, but we will talk about, what's the best way to divvy up the uh, training duration that you do have set aside, whether you want to focus a little bit more on um, shorter, more frequent bouts of training, or if it makes sense to do less frequent um, and longer duration sets. So with that in mind, uh, Michael was kind enough to put together a, uh, a flowchart or, or a decision tree for a runner trying to figure out whether he or she should be doing longer bouts or shorter bouts. And we will uh, post that with our show notes. Um, but uh, over the air, if, uh, if Michael, if you want to take us through that, uh, that I think is a really good place to start. So thinking here, while we're, while we're talking about a runner is because if we're talking about a multi-sport athlete, it's, we have a few additional variables. So it becomes a bit unwieldy, but uh, the principles are the exact same for a multi-sport athlete. But uh, yeah, so so the the idea here with the decision tree, I definitely recommend listeners go to to your show notes and check it out, uh, because it's a simple series of yes or no uh, questions. And, and the first question that I would pose here is, are you training at or above the minimal effective frequency? And you can you could argue back and forth what is the minimal effective frequency. I'd argue that uh, it, is a, it is a generalization, of course, but for a single sport athlete, I would say that four times per week, so training every other day or slightly more than every other day is the minimal effective frequency where you are at a good productive frequency of training. And if the answer to that is no, so you're training maybe three times per week, then I would definitely prioritize frequency above duration. So if you have and the way that I dis planned this decision tree or designed this is that you always get to an answer that is either prioritize frequency or prioritize duration. So that means that if you're redistributing the hours that you have, or you suddenly realize that you have one extra hour or two extra hours to train, how are you going to allocate those hours? 
you, this is this decision chart or decision tree will give you an idea of whether to prioritize those extra hours or your reallocation of hours to more workouts or longer workouts. So, but if you are already training at or above the minimal effective frequency of four times, the next question here that I would say plays a big part is, do you train for a longer race? And by that, I mean a race that lasts one hour or longer. Again, this is, uh, you you could argue back and forth, what is the the threshold? There's no magic threshold, of course, but... uh, and we're not talking about physiological thresholds, but the threshold here for where what we call a longer race. But I think one hour is uh, is something that anything longer than that, that's a pure, pure endurance event for sure. So um, I think it may make sense now to talk about uh, sort of the, the value of frequent exposure. You know, you started with this minimal effective frequency, Michael. And I happen to agree with you. You know, I, for my single sport athletes, I, I try to encourage them to get up to, you know, five or six um, uh, workouts or runs per week. Uh, so I'm with you 100%. But let's maybe spend a little bit of time talking about what is the value of that frequent exposure in your opinion? Yeah, so so the value of it is that uh, this goes for it, like beyond endurance sports as as well. Uh, in anything that you want to be good at, you you need to just frequently practice that. That's uh, at a high level. As a simple answer to it. Uh, if we pit it against against the duration of single workouts, if we have a, a static or we have a constant. Uh, total training volume that the value of frequent exposure especially in more skill-based activities is that uh, you might not be able to to improve your skill as much unless you have that that frequent exposure to it even if you have the same total uh, total volume of training so we can look at something like uh, like violin playing the violin and that's uh, an example that i that is quite interesting because it was famously raised by uh, uh, Anders Ericsson in his work in uh, the Aquis Expert Performance that then was popularized to into the uh, somewhat controversial 10,000 hour rule by Malcolm Gladwell. But uh, there they pointed out that that's world-class violin players, they, they can practice up to seven or eight hours per day. But the thing here is that they do not start out doing that and they do not start out, out playing seven hours per day for one day a week and then suddenly add a second day or a third day they might start out playing 20 to 30 minutes per day or or something like that when they're very young, when they're five years old. And then gradually over time, they increase that duration that they play per age. Uh, but the important thing that is that from the very start, every day with very few exceptions. Of course, our sports are a little bit less skill-based than the violin, but the swim, you could argue, is uh, very, very skill-based, even if there is, of course, a large physical and metabolic component to it as well. So, and this is something that we mentioned as well in our email conversation that uh, more skill-based sports might benefit more from that really frequent exposure. And I I would agree with that. Swimming is one of those. And running, even if it might not seem like it's skill-based, you do have a sort of an invisible skill aspect to it, which is economy and uh, your running economy. So how fast you can run for, uh, for a given energy turnover that benefits that does benefit a lot from frequency it also benefits just from volume in general and i don't know if there's actually 
any evidence that frequency is more important than duration, but I would argue that uh, intuitively it is in terms of improving economy because there is a better chance that you're really ingraining good form in a fresher stage you are when you're doing slightly shorter but more frequent run workouts compared to doing longer uh, workouts where you might be already fatigued in that second half of the run and might not be able to practice that uh, really good form with good economy as much. And and then the other aspect as well when we're considering the run in particular is that uh, is injury risk. And because that is, of course, also closely correlated with the overall running volume. But here, I think it's very clear that uh, compared with, uh, with the duration of a single workout, the risk of injury is much less if you have shorter workouts and, and the same total volume compared to if you have fewer, fewer longer workouts, and especially if you have one really long workout. So if you're training six hours per week and one of them is a four-hour run, your your risk goes through the roof compared to to doing six one hour runs per week. So uh, so those are some of the the main things that I would uh, that, that I would point as benefits to to frequent training. I love that comparison there with the violin. Um, it's it makes perfect sense when you think about it that way because if uh, say you were to practice an instrument for sixteen hours straight once a year that's pretty obvious to most people that you wouldn't improve. Uh, Likewise, if you were to practice for a minute and a half each day or every hour, then you wouldn't be getting any improvements either. So finding that balance between the two is, um, is, is the challenge, but uh, it really drives it home having an analogy like that, that I think a lot of people can relate to with the really skill-based technique that you're working on. So like swimming or uh, like you said, to a, a lesser extent running, but uh, for rationalizing those things, I love taking it to the extreme because it it helps to isolate what you're after and what you're looking for. And that that one session a year is obviously not gonna uh, not going to help anyone. And when you take it to that extreme, it just that solidifies it in my mind. Yeah, absolutely. Agreed. And uh, listen, Michael, uh, you you pretty much poked out all of my all my pros for uh, for uh, frequent bouts of training. Um, so I won't belabor them again. Uh, but certainly, you know, uh, reduction in injury risk, and then um, and being fresh when you're starting a workout, so you can really practice that um, that uh, that skill. I think uh, in drawing on on Erickson's work, they they talk about deliberate practice, where it's not just doing the activity, but being mindful about the activity itself and it's very hard to be mindful of your running form at the end of a <laughs> at the end of as you say a four-hour run where where you know you're just it, it becomes more of a march to survive than uh than execute with uh, with correct form i just uh uh, from experience, I just ran the uh, the Toronto Marathon last weekend, and uh, you know I can certainly say that the last uh, the last seven or so kilometers there was not much good form being practiced by me, mostly because I was, you know, mechanically falling apart. So that's a that's a super valid point. That when you're practicing a skill, um, it's important to be practicing it correctly, and that's it seems like a trivial thing to say, but uh, it is uh, it is something that that quickly falls apart. I think when when um, expediency or fatigue um, start to play a role, and we see this a lot in um, in strength training, for example. I, uh, I'm just starting up a strength training group in in Toronto, and that's one thing that we always we always think about is that when we're learning new movements, we're learning them when we're fresh. We never try to learn movements when we're when we're tired, um, and this is you know not the best way to pattern 
new mechanics and certainly a good way to get hurt. And this is what will happen too when you're doing, um, if you're at the end of a long bout of training and you're trying to, to perfect your swim stroke or your run gait. Now, a question for both of you that I've got. Um, when, when you're looking at these skills, uh, is there value to being at that state where you're just starting to fatigue and you can just start to feel your form slipping, but you're still aware and still able to correct it? Like spending time on that cliff's edge, I guess, would that be valuable? I would say absolutely yes, uh, as long as you, you stay stay mindful. And uh, swimming is a great example. There are some some athletes, uh, especially those slightly newer to triathlon, for example, and and adult onset swimmers that uh, might I've I've heard about athletes that uh, they simply get out of the pool way too early and never give themselves the chance to really improve because they don't swim enough. Because as soon as they feel the first onset of their form not being what they believe is good for them at that stage in their development they just stop and and that's not how it works it's uh there are shades of gray there and and i think that practicing good form or decent form when you're when you're tired and that includes 10 sets your form might not be quite as good as what you what you just did when you did that technique set but but it's still good enough that's highly valuable in, in my opinion so so yes absolutely yeah i think it comes down to the the you know the uh, stated goal of a session right if you're working specifically on technique or form then being fresh while doing it is a priority whereas if you're training something like fatigue resistance which i think is probably a really good next topic for us because that gets into the duration side of the of this uh, this uh, balance um but if you are working on fatigue resistance then then certainly doing work when you are tired like that's you know for instance if you think about what a brick run is that's essentially what you're trying to train there is you're trying to run with good to decent form when you're fatigued off uh you know in, in our case a, a bike ride yeah, definitely. No, you're absolutely right that the the goal of the session has has a big role to play there. So for a pure technique swim, for example, then uh, yeah, in that case, you're you're just working on on your technique. Uh, I I want to come back to one thing though with the frequency, uh, if uh, if it's okay, with uh, coming back to the high level of, of why it's uh, it's valuable. And you mentioned there the three var- variables that we have: we have uh, frequency, intensity, and duration. And uh, and those are the main variables. Of course, they are sort of the external stress uh, that uh, we get from a workout and or from training, because frequency, of course, is not uh, one single workout. Is one workout, but uh, we can train seven times per week, or fifteen times per week, or four times per week. So that's where frequency comes in. But in addition to that, total imposed stress or load that we get from a training program also is a function of uh, of the the physical metabolic mental hormonal and environmental state in which you do the workout or the workouts if we look at it from the program level so it's not all about those variables as you as you also mentioned and those totally. other functions they become more important when we're talking about frequency versus duration so for example if you're doing a really long run or li- really long ride you will do part of that ride in a completely different metabolic state quite possibly also mental and you might do the the rest of your workouts the, the following days in a completely different physical state which includes things like elevated injury risk if you did a long run uh, you might have hormonal changes so so you might have higher cortisol levels and things like that and and this is why we, we're trying to also make sure that we can somehow manage these other 
variables that will have a big impact on the total stress experience from a workout by manipulating the more simple variables, intensity and frequency. But these other variables are the main reasons that I think that uh, when we look closely at things like training stress score and uh, so on, we're missing so much of the big picture because they are, even though we can't directly manipulate these variables too much, some of them we can, some of them we can't, but uh, but they need to be taken into account because there's a total difference between doing a four-hour long ride indoors on the trainer with no fan versus doing it outdoors in, in nice temperature and so on. So so that's, uh, those other variables are also very important when it comes to this discussion. Yeah, no, I absolutely agree with you. And uh, that does bring up a, a super valid point, especially uh, if you, especially as we start talking about duration, because it's, it's generally those, uh, again, because we're, we're leaving intensity out of this conversation, it's the, this really truly stressful workouts metabolically, structurally, uh, psychologically are the ones that, that do get long. Yeah, exactly. So, um, let's, uh, let's jump back to your, your decision tree and, uh, and, uh, get back to the, uh, we left it off at, uh, are you racing for a longer race? And, um, uh, Michael, do you want to take us from there? Yeah. So if we go down the no branch, so let's say we're, for example, training for a 5k, then the next question that you get to here is, are you a quote unquote diesel engine as opposed to more of a speedy athlete that does well on short interval workouts or really short races. Uh, if you are not... Can we spend a bit of time talking about this? Yep. Uh, sorry, Michael, sorry to interrupt, but let, I'd like to interrogate this diesel engine concept a little bit. Um, you probably, your listeners have, have heard this thrown around uh, if you're a cyclist or a runner, you know, and um, I just want to add a little bit of a, of a definition, not that we can really define it precisely. You obviously run on carbohydrates and not on diesel fuel. So, uh, but, uh, but just to give, just to give people an idea of what, what a diesel uh, a diesel athlete is like what some of the characteristics of a diesel engine are michael what do you think so they have a sort of a flatter power duration curve if we're looking at a cyclist uh, which means that uh, they don't have a very high sprint power or if we talk about a runner they don't have a, a great sprint on them they uh, but they can go on for a long time they don't have that much difficulty doing doing long runs long is relative for each athlete of course but sure. But compared to how they do on short distances, short races, their longer distances are are stronger. So they might be a stronger 10K runner than a 5K runner, for example, a stronger Olympic distance athlete than a, than a sprint distance uh, triathlete. Right. And in terms of workouts that, that, that they would naturally gravitate to, I find that, uh, you know, the diesel engine folks, they like the long rides, they like the long runs, they don't love the track sessions or anything where they're... Uh, you know, any of the workouts where they're asked to work above, um, above threshold. So, you know, any VO2 max power or pace uh, intervals, that sound about right? Yeah, definitely. Uh, the one caveat to, uh, to all of what we said about the diesel engine is that for some athletes, they might think that they are, for example, that they are a diesel engine just because they've actually never done a short race or they've never done short and sharp interval work. So, uh, just the fact that you don't know because you have never really tried it that doesn't mean that you actually are a diesel engine so so you actually ideally you need some some data to back that up 
some races will, will do like races of different distances or something like a, a critical power test so testing your ability over uh, let's say one kilometer and 400 meters and three kilometers on the track perhaps would uh, would do great right so uh, but so yeah that that's that's one one thing that i wanted to point out no, I think you're absolutely right. And, and there's there's another sort of uh, there's another factor that I find anecdotally with with my the athletes that I work with and per, with myself personally too, is um, is most people, especially after a period of not doing uh, any work above threshold, those first few um, you know high intensity workouts and that's you know above threshold VO two max style of work, they feel incredibly hard. So if you've only to Michael's point, if you've never done it, you don't know. But also, if you've only done one or two <laughs> or three, you won't know because at first they'll feel terrible. And part of that, I, my sort of pet theory on this is it's psychological. Um, it's the first couple of times you go out there and you you hammer really hard intervals. They're going to feel super hard. And then very quickly, you'll find that they start to become a little bit less hard. And I don't think that that adaptation is physiological, I don't think there's enough time that passes after one or two sessions, one or two sessions aren't going to make any kind of, uh, you know, measurable difference. I think what's happening is that we are becoming accustomed to that sort of that high load. And that helps with um, that helps with tolerating these loads in the future. I think our brains are, are, um, you know, there's a, a model of the brain that I really like, you know, where you think of the brain as a prediction engine. And, uh, you know, if you're, you have one, you've had one exposure to high intensity intervals, and it went very badly. The next time you're going to do it, you're going to be a little bit more cautious about it. And you're going to have that negative after image, if you like, uh, of that experience. And it really does take, you know, depending on the individual, several bouts of this style of training before it becomes not horrendous and and becomes um, psychologically tolerated. Yes, absolutely. I absolutely agree. So so then if your answer to that question is no, you're not a diesel engine. So this might be, uh, typical examples might be somebody who comes to endurance sports from a team sport background. So they're playing football or soccer uh, or or something like that or or other sports. They're, or you might not have played any of those sports. You might just be genetically predisposed to being more of a speedy fast powerful athlete compared to a very like high endurance type athlete uh, so so you're not a diesel engine then i would say that uh, and remember that this is sort of decision tree i'm trying to make a formula out of something that is not formulaic so uh, so take it for <laughs> what it is for sure but uh, prioritize duration would be uh a good advice and remembering that we're still we're, we're training for a shorter race here a 5k i still think that there is a case for this athlete to to start to gradually build up their long run and and that will help them they will help them build their aerobic engine that will be really really useful for them in the 5k so so that's the the reasoning there behind behind that then on the other hand if you are a diesel engine then the next question that we get to is are you currently doing a weekly long run and the long run here in this context, it is contextual. It's uh, depending on the athlete. I would say that 90 minutes, if you're training for a 5K, that's uh, that's more than enough. You don't really need to build up to, to any more than that for 5K. That's a really good long run for a 5K runner, uh, even an experienced one. Right. So if you are doing that long run, your answer to that question is yes. Then we get to another endpoint, which is prioritize frequency. So uh, if we have more time to allocate, we allocate that to to building more frequency into our training. And then, if uh, on the other hand, if we don't do a weekly long run currently, 
then we get to one final question here, uh, a tiebreaker. And that final question is, do you currently train more than that minimal effective frequency? Here termed four times per week, four runs per week. But if we are actually training more than that, let's say we are training six times per week, then we get, or even five times per week, uh, then, then I would say that uh, we get to the, the endpoint prioritize duration. So that's again where we start to build up that long run. Even if we already have a strong aerobic engine, we are a diesel athlete, but we, we're still hitting five runs per week or six runs per week, So, but we're not doing a long run. So that's why I think that at this point, it makes sense to start working, building up that long run. Uh, but on the other hand, if we are training four times per week, then I think the the incremental gains that you can get from adding more frequency, so upping it to five runs per week, are probably going to be greater than those that you could get by making one of your four runs longer. So I would allocate that time to to frequency rather than to duration. Right. Uh, I totally agree with this, Michael. And I'm going to cheat because I'm going to break the rules of this conversation and and say that probably if you're, you know, if you're doing all of these things, if you're arriving at this endpoint and you're, you know, you're doing more than the minimum effective frequency and you're already, you know, um, and you're, uh, you may have uh, a long run in your in the mix. I think you know the next step you have to look at is intensity, right? And that's outside of the scope of this conversation. But I think that's where you, that's where you continue to take this uh, this train of thought down the road. Oh yes, yeah, absolutely. Uh, now, do you want to go down the other branch, which is if you're training for a race that is longer than one hour? Sure, let's do it. Let's do it um, because a lot of the principles remain the same, in my understanding. Um, we can we can go through they it. They are the same. Yeah, it's so so. Just quickly, quick, quick, if you answered yes to that question, let's say you're training for a marathon, then the next question is: Do you do a weekly long run currently? And if the answer is no, start building up that long run. If the answer is yes, we get to the question: Do you currently train more than the minimal effective frequency? And uh, if the answer is yes, then we, again, so we are training, let's say five times per week, then we get to prioritize duration. So start to build up that long run. Uh, And if the answer is no, we get to the question, are you a diesel engine? And uh, if we answer no to that, then we prioritize duration. And if the answer is yes to that, then prioritize frequency. So we use the exact same questions, but just in a slightly different order, depending on the race that we're we're training for. So if we're training for a longer race, we place the question, do you do a weekly long run earlier up, uh, uh, higher up in, uh, in the stream of questions, because that's going to be more important for you compared to somebody who's training for a shorter race. Whereas for a shorter race, we are uh, a higher priority is to establish what type of athlete it is. Is it a diesel engine or a more uh, powerful, fast athlete? So, so that's the whole uh, thinking behind, behind this. For sure. So you're just adding a little bit of race specificity to the longer run, uh, the longer race yeah. selection. Uh, and that makes perfect sense because you're, you know, if you think about the limiters of, um, you know, taking your one hour or longer. So if you're doing a half marathon or a marathon, your limiters are going to be, you know, very much metabolic and at, at the longer end or more intense end, it's going to be muscular endurance. And that's, that's where those, those, Maybe I'm getting a little bit ahead of myself because we haven't really talked about the value of the of the long runs, and uh, I think we should. But in this case, um, you know, certainly the 
the metabolic efficiency and the um, uh, muscular endurance, which is, like I said, a, a lesson I learned on Sunday. Um, those those characteristics of fitness become um, of paramount importance for longer races. Yeah. So do you want to spend a little bit of time talking about duration? And when I say duration here, I think we, we're we not talking about global duration, like weekly mileage, although maybe we can, but I want to specifically talk about the value of that one long run um, that you may do in your week. Yeah, sure. So there are some... Uh some benefits of that long run or long workout in general that are overlapping the general volume that you do. And that is just simply uh, the repeated exposure to uh, to muscle contractions, even if they are uh, not very forceful because we're going at a relatively low intensity. Uh, we might be between 60 and 80% of VO2 max or so when we're training at a, uh, at a steady state, clearly below threshold. Uh, 60 to 75 percent perhaps and uh, and that sort of uh, of adaptation we could get from either from the total volume or from the long run and that is based based on some physiological pathways with uh, which we don't need to go into details on uh, but uh, we are triggering repeated muscle contractions training for a long time that's one of the benefits that we're getting and uh, and that that can the long run and the long ride they definitely have a benefit there as well because we're doing that uh, we're we're accumulating volume but it's not to say and i don't know that it's exactly the same value of doing a four hour ride versus four times one hour rides but uh, both of them add to that to that account so to say so we're still getting benefits from both both even if i'm not sure if both are the exact same but then another benefit that uh that we really cannot get from from just uh, substituting the long duration frequent shorts is uh, the metabolic side of things and uh, specifically training your ability to to effectively use fat for fuel and uh, so that's that's something that you sure you can do that in uh, in your shorter runs just by by the mere fact that you're going at the the intensity that is uh, predominantly using using fat for fuel but what you cannot replicate is the ability to keep going and keep using that fat for fuel uh, for longer and relying on that even when your glycogen stores get lower and also when your muscle fibers start to fatigue and you start to introduce more fast twitch muscle fibers into the mix so uh, trying to to improve your your fat metabolism uh, is something that uh, you cannot comp- you can to some extent get that by by just doing low intensity training in general but you can't get all of the benefits of that by just doing short frequent workouts you think there are some benefits that uh, that you can only get by by going longer yeah my understanding of it i uh, you know kind of aligns with yours michael that uh, you can even in shorter sessions as long as you keep you know power or pace um or running power um in the you know in that and it's going to be individual, but you're, what you said, sixty to seventy-five percent of VO two max, you know, is is a nice broad range. Um, so even in shorter bouts, um, except for maybe the very first few minutes where your body is still warming up and, and oxygen kinetics are still kind of ramping up, um, you will hit a steady state where you're going to be predominantly fueling that workout with fat. 
Um, and then improving fat metabolism can happen in shorter bouts because you are still using all of those, uh, all of those metabolic pathways that, uh, that use fat for fuel. Um, and in my experience and my sort of research, I think the, the key component is that muscle fiber um, conditioning that uh, that switch from type one, which you know traditionally called the slow twitch, to the uh, type two X um, uh, fibers as the type ones fatigue. And the, in order to get the type ones to fatigue, you do have to do a certain amount of work. And certainly, the more one of the reasons we progress our log runs is because the more uh, fatigue resistance those type ones become, the longer it takes to well fatigue them. So the longer you have to go in order to start using those those type 2x fibers in order to perform that similar uh, that similar function and those fibers can be trained to use fat for fuel but they don't always start out that way so that's i think in my experience my opinion the um, the real the, probably the biggest bang for your buck for those uh, for those really long efforts yeah absolutely so yeah that's exactly that's the third point that i was going to get to going specifically into that fiber cycling uh but you're absolutely right and, and that's again why uh, those variables that we mentioned that we can't directly manipulate but uh what's the uh, the metabolic uh the the environmental the physical and the hormonal states in which you do the workout and in this case in particular the the metabolic state it changes so drastically from uh, the first hour to the third hour of a long run that that's why uh, you're getting benefits from that long run that you wouldn't get by doing even two and a half hour runs although you get you start to get some of those things uh, even in the in the second hour uh, and and that's why for many athletes focusing on 5k's i, I would say that going for 90 minutes is uh, is going to give them a lot of the the benefits that they need and they might not need to go that much longer than that. Right, right. And then there's also the value. We we hinted at it when when we talked about the um the when we looked at the decision tree for longer races, the value of um, you know, race specific training. And there's there's a psychological component here too where, you know, you have to be you have to be okay with being on your feet and running for very long periods of time if you're training for for events that demand you to be running for long periods of time and that's that psychological hurdle especially for um newer runners that's that that's a big deal um that that knowledge that you that, that confidence that you're able to perform for the for those long durations that's uh that's an important concept uh, of the or an important component of those long training events too yeah, and, and uh, we could even go into things like equipment. Let's say you're an ultra runner and uh, your backpack or, or hydration bladder might be totally comfortable for for three hours, but you're training for 100 miler. So, so if you're an ultra runner, then going for a couple of five-hour training runs where you can see whether it's still uh, or loose for that matter and socks, uh, those are things that, uh, that are also massively important and, and that... Uh, only the long run or long workout can can really reveal. Absolutely, and then uh, the our, the favorite topic of uh, of Andrew and myself, uh, heat transfer. If you're race, if you're going to be racing in, you know anything above very cool conditions, then uh, being able to operate at a higher core body temperature for extended periods of time and, and practicing your all of those uh, novel and not so novel cooling strategies. That's uh, that's another you know that's another thing that you can tick off your list with a with a long training bed yeah yeah and uh and uh alongside that hydration for example and uh, and then nutrition uh which is uh another very important thing that uh, is are are just 
two other things to to add to that already long laundry list of of things that you need a long <laughs> long workout for if, if that's what you're training for that kind of event absolutely yeah there's uh there's some there's some evidence that you know as you uh as you go through a very long workout or, or race your your gut's ability to absorb glucose decreases so when you were starting you know if you were if you train your gut and you were super good at it and your body could absorb 90 grams an hour chances are you know at hour 10 of your Ironman, um, that number is not so high Yeah, because there's all, all sorts of other stressors on your body, not the least of which is that thermal stress. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So by way of summarizing uh, this uh, decision tree that Michael provided, um, as much as we can, knowing that they're going to be individual factors for most runners, especially for those who are not training for a very long event, uh, frequency generally trumps duration. Uh, you want to be able to frequently, comfortably run frequently before you really start to to build duration. And for those of you who are uh, training for a half marathon or a marathon, then you can't really avoid doing the longer work. But do keep in mind that there are some uh, some anecdotal rules that are fairly well accepted in the running community um, of the ratio of your long run duration to the rest of your training load uh, or your the rest of the training duration during your week. The common one that I hear is and the one that I, I accept is uh, you don't want that long run to be longer than half of your total weekly volume so for instance if you're if you're only running 60 kilometers a week that long run the longest it can be is about 30 kilometers uh, it's not super safe to go any longer than that so perhaps adding frequency even if it's a matter of very short um, adder runs throughout the week can pad your total weekly duration and allow you to run a little bit longer for your longer runs yeah, absolutely. It's it's a simplistic view, of course, that we've presented here, and, and that listeners will see in the in that uh, chart, the decision tree. But uh, and there are actually, do you want to talk about some additional considerations, uh, just briefly for for triathletes and multi sport athletes? For sure, let's do that. Yeah. There is actually one point I want to bring up as well, um, looking at your overall experience in some of these things um, for how it affects minimal effective frequency. Um, the reason I bring this up is uh, anecdotally, a friend of mine, or actually the co-founder of Stack and, and now co-worker at Four Eyes, Art Hare, he was a competitive swimmer for 16 years, something like that. He can go a year and a half without swimming and then hop in the pool and do repeats at like 120 and it drives me nuts. <laughs> so um, it's, uh, I think there's something to be said for long-term adaptations that you get from all this training and then how that might affect your minimal effective frequency. But I have no proof of that. This is just anecdotal. Um, but it, it kind of falls in line with the 10,000 hour rule as well. Yes, for sure. And the minimal effective frequency in this context is... Uh what is like a really productive amount of training where you can actually improve so he's not necessarily improving he just has his baseline at that for most of us ridiculously high level mm -hmm. of uh, of fitness and uh, <laughs> but actually for him it's probably quite low compared to where he could be if he was swimming four times per week exactly uh, so so that's uh but but you're absolutely right and that's one of the things that i wanted to mention for triathletes that uh, the additional things that you need to consider is what are your strengths and weaknesses in each sport for triathletes by the way i think that the minimal effective frequency is not four times per week that it might it would be three times per week is what i would say uh, free swims free runs and free bikes but uh, then again you might 
move those workouts around a bit depending on where you're really strong and where you're really weak so uh so art for example is somebody that probably should not be spending a lot of time in the pool because he he would take much more than is really uh, beneficial for him to improve a marginal amount to mm-hmm. to actually get get that improvement that could be better spent on on improving the run or the bike and back in his glory days he used to swim i think it was uh, they had four or five practices a week twice a day um, so you're looking at 10, 10, doses for frequency and a decent amount of duration at each one of those. So that's, I mean, that's again, a competitive swimmer at the university level, which is a fairly high level. I guess, uh, that's the point where you decide if you're going to the Olympics or retiring for most people. Um, so obviously there's, there's a lot of really talented people that come out of those kind of training programs. Yeah. And the other thing that we we talked about, Michael, was the the logistics of well, how, how that uh, it's what what you do. Like for example, uh, can you actually get to the pool without commuting for for an hour each way? And and uh, and that impacts frequency, of course. If it's a, a difficult commute, then it might be better to actually not waste too much time commuting and train less frequently in the pool. And on the flip side of that, if you're stuck on the trainer for eight months out of the year, then maybe even though you would benefit from doing a lot of long duration rides, you might choose to err on the side of frequency just because it would be mentally draining to do those really, really long rides very often. Oh, I totally agree. And just to circle back to what Andrew was saying and what you guys were actually were both saying about uh um, about prioritizing your strengths and weaknesses. Um, it's worth also thinking about, you know, if we're looking, if, if our ultimate goal isn't necessarily building fitness, but building an optimal race athlete for their specific event, it's worth noting that, you know, in a, in a long course triathlon, so half Ironman, Ironman, the swim is roughly 10% of your race. So even if you can have, you know, a relative improvement of, 10% or 15% or 20% in your swim time, the the net impact on your race time is quite small comparing to an equal improvement in speed or pace for your bike or your run. So that's, uh, that's kind of, uh, that's, that's the way that I look, look at it. And that's probably, that's my, um, confirmation bias because I'm not a huge fan of swimming personally. So that's my, that's usually my, the excuse I tell myself about why I'm not going to the pool more frequently. So take it for what it is. It is true. It is true. Yeah. Well, I'd just like to say that from my standpoint, this has been super interesting. I've been kind of sitting back and not saying a whole lot and just enjoying the two of you going back and forth and discussing this. Uh, but when I, for someone not coming from a coaching background, uh, it's so helpful to have this all laid out in a flow chart. And I think a lot of people will be able to use this to great effect. Um, and it's, it's very obvious when you see it, but just putting it down and actually looking at it and actually thinking about it is a huge step for a lot of people. Yeah. Yeah. That's uh, that's great. I re- really, really hope that that people will find it useful. Oh, thanks for saying that, Andrew. Um, well, I think that's a, a great place to um, to tie this uh, tie a bow on this episode, as it were. Uh, Michael, thank you very much for coming on the show. Thank you. It was uh, great to chat again. And um, as uh, as I mentioned earlier in the show, folks can find you at uh, Scientific Triathlon at that and that triathlon show. Is there anything else that uh, you want listeners to know about anything, uh, any promotions or any uh, training things that you've got coming up? 
no, nothing in particular. Definitely encourage you to check out that triathlon show and uh, they will uh, be able to stay up to date with what's going on at Scientific Triathlon that way. Perfect, perfect. Andrew, anything new with you or with uh, Four Eyes? No, no, we're just kind of rolling forward with the the new smart trainer that I've mentioned a couple of times, the flight smart trainer. So that's just about to hit hit our distributors and we're super excited about that. Excellent. I'm looking forward to uh, taking a look at it. That's cool. Uh, <laughs> all right. Well, with that, uh, we'll uh, sign off. Thank you, Andrew and Michael, for joining us today. Thank you. Thanks, everyone.